This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. The performance of these judges in our judiciary nominations hearings has become absolutely rote, and they will say the things that their handlers tell them to say, which include the typical nod to the importance of precedent, and then they will immediately get on the court and go right out and run wild over those doctrines, and there's no consequence. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts and the Supreme Court and the law. We're going to do a special podcast this week on the vacancy created at the court last week with the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy. This coming Monday during primetime, Donald Trump is going to announce his pick to fill that seat. The shortlist has ostensibly been whittled down to three or four names, and the president is said to have met with all of them and already selected a nominee. Mitch McConnell has chosen September for confirmation hearings, and a lot of listeners have sent in emails saying, ah, what do I do? So joining us to discuss what Senate Democrats can do is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from the great state of Rhode Island. He sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee. He's joined us on the show before. Senator Whitehouse, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be with you. And I think I want to start by asking you what I asked last week's guests, which is you've watched Anthony Kennedy for a long time. Were were you surprised by his decision to step down last week? I was. Caught me completely cold. And do you do you take it as some iteration of whatever happens, happens, but he just can't fix things anymore? Or is there something going on there beyond that? I know there was a bunch of last minute reporting. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think we know the full story on that yet. The back and forth between the Trump White House and him about trying to get him to resign before the election, the stories about his son's business arrangements with the Trumps. I mean, it all just seems a little a little odd. Yeah. But we don't know the full story yet, I don't believe. Okay, well, let's leave it at odd. What I wanted to ask you about, and I No, you and I spoke before the Neil Gorsuch confirmation hearing. There is this frantic discussion out there about what can be done. What's the plan? What are Senate Democrats doing? And my slightly cynical answer is not much to be done. I think my best answer last week from a guest on this podcast was everybody needs to move to Maine. Um, But do you have a idea, a good, sanguine, solid answer for what happens between the naming of this nominee on Monday and hearings in September? There's no magic ointment, no magic potion, no magic elixir 
that Senate Democrats can deploy to uh, stop a nominee. It's a little bit more like going into the ring at the bell, and you've got to wait and see what uh, you know, your adversary is doing, and do they leave you an opening? Do they make a mistake? Do they slip? Is there some uh, thing that you can take advantage of? But in the same way, you can't go into a round in a uh, boxing match knowing precisely what your strategy is going to be because your adversary gets a very big vote. You know, there's no bell we can pull that makes this all go away. We just have to go in there and and do our best to try to take advantage of whatever mistakes they may make or whatever openings we may get. What I'd like to be able to say is that, well, there's always the chance that they'll actually pick a, you know, really legitimate nominee who will be no cause for concern. And I know that uh, Chuck Schumer proposed Judge Garland. But I don't think that's realistic. I think that the special interests who now control the Republican judicial nominating process have very specific set of outcomes in mind. And uh, we're doomed at this point to a nominee who is the product of that special interest nomination process. So, so before, I know you've thought so much about the connection between dark money and post-Citizens United, money in politics and, and nominees, and then they ha- how they vote. And I do want to hone in on that. But before we do, I wonder, Senator, if you have some tactical thought about whether the current scramble that involves some people saying, this is about Roe, let's make it about Roe, or let's make it about the Mueller probe and how Trump shouldn't be selecting somebody who may make determinations about the lawfulness of the Mueller probe or other people you know, making similar claims about whatever the tactic is. Is this a time for just unity, one note, one message? You know, this is this is all about abortion or this is all about unions? Or is it OK that different different folks are making entirely different claims about why this is not a legitimate seat? I think, you know, you've got a very big party. You've got a very broad array of Democratic senators just in our caucus in the Senate. The idea that everybody's going to be saying the same thing uh, about a nominee seems a little bit unlikely. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think there are things that the public is going to be concerned about, particularly once we see who the nominee is and what their record portends for issues like health care and women's right to choose. But I think our fundamental problem is that we start having this discussion when there's a vacancy. And then, as you said, everybody runs around trying to get on some kind of a message. And what we have not done is acted uh, patiently persistently and strategically, knowing that this day was going to come, and effectively made the case for the American people about the capture of the court by special interests and what it means for them. That's not a concept that you can ask a voter to take on in a one-minute advertisement or a 30-second advertisement. That's something that people have to, you know, kind of learn gradually. You've got to make the case persistently. To me, that's the major concern about all of this, is that this is no longer about judging. This is about uh, political outcomes driven by a politically-minded activist group of uh, five Republican appointees. Even you and I have had this conversation in the past, but to the extent that the Republican Party just has a decades-long jump 
on getting voters to care and that I think the exit polls I saw after the 2016 election were that Democrats who prioritized the court just didn't care enough to show up. And by about a two to one margin, Republicans who cared about the court voted for Donald Trump, even though they didn't like Donald Trump. So so there's a big I guess we call it the enthusiasm gap or focus gap. You're, You're making the point, and I agree with you, that we can't teach folks that between now and September? What is the best argument we can make for people who just think the court happens out in the world and has no connection to the future of healthcare, reproductive rights, the future of the environment, all the stuff that you have been trying to tell them to connect as long as I've heard you talk about it? What's, what's the message? How do we catch up? The immediate way to connect uh, a judicial appointee uh, into somebody's personal life is to talk about what choice means. I mean, an entire generation of women has grown up with Roe versus Wade basically guaranteeing uh, certain rights that they have. And while the Republicans have nibbled at it, the fundamental uh, force of Roe versus Wade is intact. And if that is to fall, that will be a stunning change in circumstances for a very great number of women. And now that we have Uh, the Attorney General of the United States claiming that the protection for people of pre-existing medical conditions is legally indefensible, it's suddenly plausible to imagine a court that might say the same thing and throw that out. And now you've got everybody in the country who has a family member with a pre-existing condition remembering the days when, you know, they were job locked in because they could never get new coverage or they had to spend down to Medicare because they could, couldn't get coverage at all or they, because they couldn't get coverage, simply had to forego life-saving treatments. Those are the two, I think, biggest ways in which uh, if this court starts messing around politically in those areas, real people will see a real and dramatic change, a kind of baseline shift, earthquake style in their what they now consider to be kind of expected, settled ways of, of life. The problem, I think, is we have to be able to persist. And if you never start making the argument that this is a court that has essentially been captured by special interests and is running the tables with these five to four decisions, then there's going to be another nomination after that for which we're not prepared, and there's going to be another nomination after that for which we're not prepared. Preparation may seem a little bit late right now that we have a nomination, but if we don't start, then we'll always be unprepared until there's suddenly a vacancy and now we're in a mad scramble again. So we've got to do a better job of of helping the public see what is going on. And you wrote a piece for Slate kind of trying to make this connection between the dark money that pours into campaigns. I think you cited more than $35 million, almost $18 million from one undisclosed donor alone just to sink the Merrick Garsich uh, nomination and to put Neil The Merrick Garsich. Garland one, yeah. So... Americans hated Citizens United across all ideological lines, if I recall correctly, Senator. This seems like such a good and salient argument to be saying, as you've been saying for some time now, dark money is 
horrible in politics, and it's even worse in the Supreme Court races. Are folks able to connect what you are talking about in terms of pro-business interests pouring dark money into campaigns to seat a Supreme Court justice who then votes in the interests of big business? This seems like something that should, across all party lines, affront people. Yep. And I think that when people are given the chance to see that this is happening, they get it right away. When I talk about it to audiences, they get it right away. And I think people of all political persuasions are very concerned that if very big special interests get essentially a veto in the nominations process and then continually work the court through these phony baloney amicus groups that show up as the front groups for those same special interests, constantly feeding the right-wing judges instructions as to what they want them to do, you know, you end up with a really nasty state of affairs for regular people. What we have not done as a party is to make that point with anything like the persistence which, which the Republicans operate to try to convince people that this is all a good thing. You just have to engage. You can't win these things just because you've said it once. You've got to really be explaining this. And that's where I think we need to do a much, much better job. And can you explain just for listeners who didn't quite track the number of 5-4, I think you call them the Roberts 5, uh, the decisions. This term was uh, just a battering in terms of those 5-4 decisions that both closed the courthouse doors to ordinary workers and that really, I think, hobble unions and the ability to organize. Do you want to just tell us the three things or the two things that that the court decided this term that dovetail with this argument that you're making about how the Roberts Court is really harming uh, the little guy in the interest of these special interests? Absolutely. Well, let me say that the two biggest categories are trying to make sure that elections-related decisions help the Republican Party and trying to protect big corporations and big special interests from the courts where they can't put the fix in the way they can in Congress and in the executive branch. You know, the courts are supposed to be fair and everybody comes through equal. If you're a big special interest, the last thing you want is to be equal with somebody. You're supposed to be like the big dog in the room and everybody's supposed to kowtow to you. So those are the two things. Fix elections for the Republicans and protect corporations from being accountable in court. And on those, you know, on the first one, you've got all this dark money stuff from Citizens United and Bullock and McCutcheon. You've got the uh, voting rights cases, just now the Husted case and the Abbott v. Perez case, so a gerrymandering case that actually upheld a, a gerrymandered set of districts that had been determined to have been racially gerrymandered by the court that had the fact-finding authority uh, below. So those two were just in this last session. And then on the other side, protecting from liability, you've got uh, a long, long array of cases. And the uh, 2018 version was Epic Systems, which is a decision that let a corporation decree to its employees that they could not sue them. They could put that in the contract. And um, that 
ability to, by contract, deny people their constitutional right of access to the courts. Imagine if they tried that with the Second Amendment. These same judges would be up in arms, I would think. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the the big kahuna was the Janus case, which took a huge punch at public employee unions, basically gutting them financially. And that was a particularly nasty decision because it began with one of the Roberts Five actually inviting somebody to bring this case, you know, putting up a sign saying, bring this case so we can hurt unions this way. And then that went forward in really phony looking litigation to a decision called Friedrichs, which was a tie because Justice Scalia had died, but it was foreordained how that was going to go had Justice Scalia survived. So then with Gorsuch on the court, they went back to it a third time now. And I can only imagine what the lawyers for the unions felt like as they walked up those courthouse steps, knowing that they were going to lose, not because their case was a bad one, it was actually the better of the two cases, but because they represented unions and there was the Roberts Five out there that were determined to uh, help the employers against the unions. And Senator, before we walk away from Janice, I think one other thread that we can pull on from Janice is that the court just willy-nilly overruled a boot, right? Overruled a, a, a decades-old precedent. And that a lot of the analysis of how we're going to test Trump's new nominee is how do they feel about precedent? How do they feel about stare decisis? I think we should be super clear that the folks who voted last week to strike down a boot and to uh, vote against the unions in Janus are all people who promised that they believed in stare decisis, they believed in precedent, that they don't willy-nilly overrule old cases. I think that we have to be really careful, right, using the language of, oh, is as a proxy for uh, judicial integrity, we'll just ask about whether they believe in stare decisis. Because I think the formula, I mean, you've sat through a lot more confirmation hearings than I, but the formula is... A boot is a decision of the court. Roe v. Wade is a decision of the court. Casey is a decision of the court. That tells you precisely nothing, right, about whether they'll be willing to overrule something in the future. The performance of these judges in our judiciary nominations hearings has become absolutely rote, and they will say the things that their handlers tell them to say which include the typical nod to the importance of precedent. And then they will immediately get on the court and go right out and run wild over those doctrines. And there's no consequence. We need to think about maybe having a consequence. If you have told us that you care so much about precedent, then you go out and you actually violate it. You shouldn't be able to do that with absolute impunity. But it's a sign of the problem on this court of the Roberts Five, that they are constantly making these decisions that run contrary to what are traditionally viewed as conservative legal doctrines. If you ask, what is a conservative judge supposed to do? Well, he's supposed to respect precedent, and he's supposed to be an originalist. He's supposed to go back to what the founding fathers intended. Those are probably the two core principles, to be a conservative judge. And then you've got Janus, which blows precedent out of the water just inexcusably. They just didn't like it any longer. And so they knocked it out. And then you go back to, you know, the most wretched of them all, Citizens United. Find me an originalist argument for Citizens United. 
I mean, the founding fathers would have been absolutely horrified to think that corporations, which they gave no role in politics in the Constitution, would have an unlimited right to spend money. And they would be wily enough politicians to know that if you let big special interests have the ability to spend that money, you empower them with the ability to threaten to. And that threat is never going to be anything but corrupting and dangerous. So the idea that the founding fathers would have thought Citizens United is okay is, to me, preposterous. So to me, it's really telling that these core doctrines like originalism and respect for precedent are so willingly wrote over by this court on its way to the result that either helps the Republican Party at the polls or protects corporations from accountability. So, Senator, now I'm, I've got sort of frowny eyebrows because I think you've just said the thing that worries me the most, which is it almost doesn't matter what happens at confirmation hearings, that we have wrote questions, wrote answers, that the answers are not only vanishingly <laughs> useless in terms of giving us any real insight into the nominee. But as you've seen, I, I've watched you on the Judiciary Committee this year. The answer to everything is I can't answer that. There's a Ginsburg rule ostensibly that holds that you can't answer, even though Ginsburg actually spoke at great length about uh, Roe v. Wade. But what do, what do you do? When, I mean, I've seen you up there looking like you wanted to throw something. But if the response is simply, I can't talk it's about it. It's very frustrating. You have five or seven minutes. You have a candidate who has been murder-boarded by professionals to be able to withstand five to seven minutes to run out the clock with long answers and to spoon-feed essential judicial pablum to us and at no costs answer any hard questions. And then when they're through, the Republicans all automatically vote for them and onto the court they go. And the next thing you know, they're making these decisions that protect the big corporate special interests and that damage American democracy in favor of the big influencers and away from regular people. It's frustrating. <laughs> Let's go back to the part where you said it's it's not time to give up. If we assume that those hearings are a, a teachable moment for the American public to understand, even if, you know, you can't muster the votes and maybe the votes will be there, and I know it turns on who the nominee is, what is the teachable moment here? What do we do? What are your questions going to be that will try to puncture this just seemingly brick wall of uh, I can't answer it's, it might come before me. Even Brown is no longer uh, discussable. Uh, the trend that you've seen towards simply running out the clock. What do you do with your time? What can we watch Senate Democrats to do that will help, if, if nothing else, set the table for this conversation in a more rigorous way going forward? I think the uh, teachable moment here comes from this array of five to four decisions in which all the Republicans line up and do something new and different. And if you look at them, there are probably 20 of them, all in all. It is far beyond any statistical explanation other than bias. You just can't justify it by the supposed balls and strikes theory of Justice Roberts. It's a pattern. It's a distinct pattern. And the average American is not familiar with, you know, six or seven Supreme Court opinions on, you know, campaign finance, gerrymandering, and Voting Rights Act. 
they're not familiar with the array of decisions on, you know, class actions and forced arbitration and discrimination and uh, union power. So you got to line it up for them so that they see the picture. You can't expect somebody who's got a busy life of their own and a family of their own to figure out that pattern unless somebody lays it out for them. And what we have not done a good job of is laying out the pattern of these, again, probably 25 to 4 decisions, all of which point in exactly the same direction. And that direction is always to the benefit of the biggest corporate influencers who are at play in our uh, politics, whether it's to support them in electing Republicans at the polls and making sure that the Democrat side always loses, whether it's gerrymandering or voter suppression or dark money, or whether it's making sure that no corporation has to spend an unfortunate moment in a courtroom facing somebody who they've injured. When you see the pattern, it becomes unforgettable, I think. Uh, maybe it's just because it's the way I practice law and it was you know, stunning to me that courts would uh, have that kind of a, of a pattern emerge. But I think showing the American public that pattern is the way to get them engaged. Because, by God, I don't care whether you're Tea Party or Bernie Sanders progressive, you believe as an American that when you get your day in court, that day in court is not going to have some big special influences thumb on the scales against you. And you're not going to have to walk into a courtroom with judges who are predisposed to rule against you just because of who you are. That is something that I think virtually every American agrees on. And I and I want to point back to something that you said that I, I want to emphasize, which is you make the point that as a result of Gill and Husted and of the Texas gerrymandering case, it is simply the case that fewer people will be eligible to vote going forward. Fewer older people, younger people, minorities, poor people, working class people, that what we looked at at the end of this term, if you aggregate the voting rights case, it looks like it's a big thumb on the scale for minority rule. So this is a court that is actually yeah. making determinations about this going forward, about who will sit on courts in the future and it looks as though it's profoundly distorting how elections work. Well, if you can look at Bush versus Gore, there's a pretty plain example of these five putting their thumb on the scales to install a Republican president before the results were in. And if you look at what they did with gerrymandering, that lit up the red map strategy of the Republican Party, which enabled them to take over Congress while winning more than a million fewer votes than Democrats did that year. But they had gerrymandered the votes into super concentrated uh, Democratic corrals so that that left them able to win the majority of the House without winning the majority of the votes. That's pretty undemocratic. And then come over to the Senate, Democrats represent 40 million more Americans than Republicans do. And yet, Republicans control the Senate, and a lot of that control relates back to the dark money that Citizens United unleashed. So you can really look across both houses of Congress and the executive branch and see a very active political thumb on the scales at that court. So my last question, Senator, before I let you go, and that is Donald Trump 
says you're playing into his hands, that the more Democrats squawk and tantrum and the more talk we hear from Democrats about shutting the whole Senate down in September or packing the court if the Democrats ever gain control of the Senate, that the more partisan and I think he would say hysterical the reaction, the more it plays to his base, the more it mobilizes them to show up and vote on an issue that they care about more than more than Democrats do. What's your answer to the question of maybe Democrats should just quietly accede to whatever is coming because it's just too dangerous before the midterms to have a fight that Democrats can't seem to win? The reason that there is this frustration is partly that these are fights that Democrats can't seem to win. And that is, in significant measure, because we have not spent time preparing for these fights. We have not built the record of what these five to four decisions mean. We have not explained how doctrinally false they are in law review articles. We have not uh, gone after the pattern of these decisions in the bar journals of the 50 states. We have not been after uh, this issue uh, politically or in op-eds. We're basically allowing the Supreme Court five, the Roberts five, like, you know, the emperor who wore no clothes, to walk all the way down Main Street, buck naked, and not bother to call them out, not bother to put in the effort that shows how naked this power grab has been and how bad it has been for regular people. And and am I right in saying that what the value of your approach is that it doesn't involve demonizing the nominee. It doesn't involve what what, what has sometimes been an unfortunate tendency on the Democrat side of the House to say this is a bad person or they're a racist or they have a bad heart. I think what you've tried to do is to pan away from the this is a horrible person and try to look at large systemic patterns. And I think that that is something that plays better for voters who are just sick to death of ugliness and demonization. Am I right? When you see the pattern, it becomes unforgettable. And as a lawyer who is used to preparing cases and putting you know, evidence together and creating demonstrative exhibits so that the jury can understand what you're saying, to me, it's been uh, malpractice not to have prepared in this way. And the fact that the Roberts Five is now 19 blocks down Main Street and nobody has yet called them out for wearing no clothes is really, really frustrating. What's heartbreaking as a lawyer who practiced a lot in appellate courts, I've argued a case in the Supreme Court and been active in the other circuits and in my Supreme Court at home. And the idea that we have to have this conversation is the saddest thing of all. The idea that there is this pattern is the saddest thing of all. But I don't think we can shrink away from what that pattern clearly says just because it requires us to disclose an unpleasant truth, which is that these emperors don't have their pants on. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from the state of Rhode Island sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Senator Whitehouse, thank you very much for your time and thank you for the bracing reminder that it's not time to give up. It is not time to give up.
So that is going to do it for this episode of We're About to Hear the Name of Donald Trump's Nominee for Anthony Kennedy's Seat edition of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. If you'd like to get in touch, our email, as ever, is amicus at slate.com. You can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That always helps other people find us. And today's show was produced by June Thomas. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.